Hello and welcome to Disrupting the Degree, the education marketing podcast. I'm Stephen Cleary from Carnival Content with Zeynab Fires and Zeynab Fires from The Brand Education. This podcast is all about higher education with industry trends, experts and practical ideas across the student experience, brand and marketing. In this episode, we're joined by Clive Jones, all the way from New Zealand. He's a director of Metamorphosis Digital. We'll be discussing Clive's research into the future of international education, his five megatrends, and how to succeed in a post-COVID world. Thanks for joining us, Clive. Hi, Stephen. Hi, Clive. It's great to have you on the podcast. Just a really quick question, actually. So why don't you give us a little bit of an overview of your career so far? Sure. So I've worked in education, international education, for nearly 20 years, both at the coalface of international education marketing in the higher education space, and then working for inside government in the global arms race that's really about trying to out-promote New Zealand as one of the many, many host countries touting for, for international students. So I've got this wide range of experience that covers you know, supporting international students in an academic environment, marketing and recruitment, and then moving into you know, a different lens of, of uh, promoting New Zealand as a country on the world stage, really getting very serious about promoting what New Zealand's got to offer and doing some pretty innovative things, and then moving into supporting universities and others to kind of lift their capability in international education marketing, and most latterly in the, what I would call the, the insight piece really looking at global trends, what's going on, and and really trying to look beyond just what's happening at the moment to what's coming in the next five to 10 years. So, Clive, you've previously mentioned that the global international strategy education industry was due for major disruption in 2020. How does COVID-19 change that outlook now? I think, you know, COVID-19 has really had a very significant impact on on international education it's it's affected institutions that can no longer get students uh, into the country and into their institutions it's affected students in terms of disrupting their current study it's affected future students in terms of creating all this uncertainty around their study plans and their their outlook for the future so don't want to underestimate the impact of COVID-19 on on institutions and students and international education globally. But actually, it's just a blip in the road. And while it's had a major impact, there are a bunch of of really significant megatrends that have been in play for quite a while that mean that things were changing anyway. And COVID in some ways is just speeding some of those trends up. Can you give us some insight into those megatrends? Sure can. So these are the things that I'm seeing sort of in a in a in a 10-year horizon. And I mean that's that's really a problem for your your average international marketing director sitting in an institution, whether that's a university or a, or a school, because when you're in that role, it's always about getting the numbers for the next term, the next semester, the next year. So it's this hamster wheel of just constantly running to to keep up with, with ever-expanding targets for both revenue and student recruitment. But if you stand back and stand outside of that and look at some of these trends, which I'll go through, then there's a really different picture. So the first mega trend is that 
we are just coming into a time when the supply of quality education is about to outstrip the, the demand from mobile international students. And what I mean by that is that in the, in the last 30 years in particular, we've seen an explosion in the, in the demand for, a, for high quality education outside of, of countries that students, whether that's from China or India, come from. So there's been this, this massive growth um, from China and from India in students seeking education from what used to just be you know, US and, and UK primarily. But as that has proven to be so attractive from an economic, cultural, social perspective, a whole range of countries have piled into that same space. So while the demand has has increased, and I think you know the, the forecasts are there's about five and a half million globally mobile learners at the moment, and that's probably going to peak at about seven to eight million in the next five years. But at the same time, the supply, you know, the number of institutions that are in the in the game to recruit international students, the number of countries, that's actually now outstripped or will very shortly outstrip the demand. And that changes the dynamics entirely. And I'll, we can talk about that in more detail. Second mega trend is peak China. China has been this, this phenomenon where uh, Chinese students have dominated the international education landscape. And, and virtually every host country, certainly the, the top 10 English-speaking destination host countries, China is their number one market. China dominates. Everyone recognizes that you know there's an over-reliance on Chinese students and they need to diversify. But uh, there are some really significant things happening in China with a rapidly aging population and Diminishing returns on that overseas investment now that so many Chinese students are, uh, have got an overseas education or are getting one and then coming back to the job market in China. It's just not as, as powerful a lever as it used to be. So as the Chinese population ages, that outflow is going to slow and then it's going to diminish and it's going to impact the whole, the whole industry, every country that relies on China at the moment. And, and I've got this kind of tagline in my head that there is no new China. Um, most, you know, most countries and most institutions are kind of they know that they're over reliant on China, and a lot of them are starting to pivot to look at Africa, which is you know a whole collection of countries. But numerically, there's there's just no collection of new markets uh, that will actually replace China, and that will have a fundamental impact on on what international education looks like globally in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Third mega trend, and you know, it's something that that you know most of us are aware of, the impact of artificial intelligence and automation on work and the nature of work is really going to phenomenally change what work looks like. And some of the forecasts are phenomenal. You know, um, artificial intelligence and robotics are forecast to replace up to 400 million workers uh, in the next decade, which is just a phenomenal number. It's also going to uh, drive the creation of of new roles, you know, roles that we kind of probably can't conceive of at the moment with new skill sets. So AI and automation are going to have a phenomenal impact on on what work is and what's needed. Fourth mega trend is around Gen Z. Gen Z, which is you know that that latest cohort of learners coming through, have got really different 
uh, values uh, and attitudes and beliefs than previous generations. Uh, they're very they're very cause driven. For example, so whereas in the past cohorts of learners have been really uh, you know focused on getting a good education to get to get a good job and and all that brings with it. Gen Z are, are concerned with with issues like climate change and social equity and a whole range of other things. So we're dealing with a new generation of learners with different beliefs and different expectations. And then finally, climate change is the the fifth and by no means the the least um, mega trend. We're all reading the the forecast that by you know 2030 the increase in average temperatures uh, will drive sea level rise, will, will drive a whole range of really disruptive forces, and the cost of mitigating those things is uh, estimated to be around $54 trillion, which is just a phenomenally huge number. An industry like international education that relies solely on putting people on planes and flying them around the world, it just doesn't seem to be sustainable. And there'll definitely be this risk of both economic penalties for, for due to carbon prices and also just this loss of social license. It will become just a frowned upon thing to to get on a plane and, and go on a holiday or actually fly to a different country. So those are the five megatrends. And while COVID, let's just go back there, while COVID seems like it's a really big deal, it's really pretty insignificant in comparison with the five megatrends. You mentioned the five megatrends. Is there a particular sort of order what's coming first, would you say, out of all of the five that you've listed? Is there one that's going to accelerate much faster than another? I think potentially that they are all in play currently, and it's it's just about how they they reinforce each other. So mm. the thing about sort of the change between supply and demand and what that's going to do to the industry that has already been in play for the last few years. The change in Chinese de- demographics um, mm-hmm. in the population of China itself that's been in, in play for the last ten years and is, and is accelerating. AI and automation, you know, that's happening around us every day. So these things, they're happening in parallel and probably they have more or less impact at different times, but I think collectively they're they're an incredibly disruptive force for international mm-hmm. education. Do you think, I know you said that COVID hasn't made a huge impact on these, but do you think that because all the institutions are moving towards blended learning and online learning and the subsequent effect of that on climate change, if you don't need to travel across the world to study in MIT or, or whatever university it might be, do you think that's going to push forward the digital change in universities then? Yeah. So so prior to COVID, we, we had you know quite a clear outlook for what we thought the impact of the megatrends would be. So, you know, headline headline pre-COVID outlook was Look, host countries like New Zealand and Australia, Canada, US, UK have done phenomenally well from international education in the last few years, but mainly because demand has exceeded supply. We, you know, we got really complacent about that. In this new era that we were, that I was forecasting based on our research, what we what we saw was hyper competition emerge. As soon as supply exceeds demand, you get into this new space and and the market for students is going to fragment into three major tiers. 
So there's there's always in in global international education there's always the premium institutions, and I won't name them, but they'll probably be relatively unaffected by the sorts of trends that I'm talking about. So you've got a premium uh, tier, you've got a a price tier that's going to emerge, and I think COVID is driving that piece where you know students are being driven into um, online and blended learning, but I would hazard a guess to say, you know, because they're not getting that whole experience package of being in the country, mm-hmm. work experience, pastoral care, all of those things, uh, post-study work rights, in-study work rights, that actually the the value proposition looks different. And as an international student, am I prepared to pay the same amount in tuition fees for an online course in my host in my own country, as I was, uh, if I was was in country, I don't think so. Um, yeah. Maybe in the premium tier, but not in the not in the price tier. And so, you know, three tiers are going to emerge. Premium's going to be unaffected. This this price tier um, we saw emerging anyway, and COVID's just going to drive that uh, far faster and far quicker than we anticipated. And then in the middle, you know, countries that like. Well, like New Zealand and Australia and, and, and Canada that have relied on this package of benefits, high quality education, in-study and post-study work rights, immigration policies, the ability to potentially get longer term immigration outcomes, they're the ones that are going to get squeezed by this explosion of the, of the price sensitive tier. And that brings me to this, this other point about what we were seeing pre-COVID, which is there's all these these countries, um, really well-resourced countries, that are fighting for this share of 8 million or so global mobile learners. But our research shows that there are 800 million learners globally that need a quality education but can't afford the same opportunity. So, you know, countries and institutions that continue to play in this hyper-competitive space, most of them aren't cut out to, to compete on price. Any institution, any country that can crack what it means to actually access this blue ocean opportunity of 800 million learners who can't afford to travel, they're going to do really, really well. It's a huge opportunity, Mm. isn't it? It's a vast opportunity. So I was going to ask, Clive, do you you think because there's such an opportunity, some of the technocrats like Google, Amazon, who are now saying they don't need a university degree, do you think, because I noticed recently that Google have announced that they're trying to disrupt degree and they have their own degree now. So do you think that there will be competition from outside HE, like from technocrats that could potentially take over? I, I certainly don't think that in, in this new new kind of global order, certainly don't think that institutions necessarily have what it's going to take to compete and, and succeed. Some of them do, don't get me wrong. But, but a lot of them just aren't agile and nimble enough and aren't able to compete based on you know a mass market approach. And mm. I have no doubt that there will be some of those big technocrat uh, companies, and it may not be the ones that we kind of necessarily readily think of, but mm-hmm. it's going to take someone from, from outside, I think, that is going to come in and take advantage of these disruptive forces and do very, very well. Interesting to have my new degree from TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> but why not? I mean, one of the I know, yeah, completely. One of the traits of, of Gen Z is they consume online content and you know, if it's on YouTube, it's true. So 
what does it mean to be a, a you know fairly traditional academic institution that relies on on lectures? Who's going to deliver it better? Yeah, a, a native digital company or a university that's trying to do it. Exactly, and and you know universities are in a difficult space because they're in this kind of legacy space, really, and it's it's always really hard. I think the you know the research and the lessons of disruption show us it's always really hard for the incumbents to actually. Uh, succeed in the face of disruption, but it doesn't mean that they can't. Um, it just means they have to work really hard to be successful. I've seen a few digital-only universities coming through. Uh, have you seen any that you think have got real promise? Well, there was the whole, I mean, if you go back only just uh, a few years, there was the whole kind of um, MOOC craze, if you're, you're not familiar with the mm-hmm. jargon, you know, massive open online courses. And you know, there was some big money poured into MOOC platforms, and I won't name them, but they'll be, they'll be you know, pretty uh, familiar to most people. And on the one hand, you'd, you'd probably say, well, they maybe haven't lived up to their full potential, but MOOC enrollments have already passed 100 million learners. And that, that statistic is a couple of years old now. And that's, you know, that's already considerably bigger than the entire size of the market for mobile learners in the world. So, you know, it's certainly demonstrating that, you know, this blue ocean opportunity of 800 million learners globally compared to the 8 million that, that can afford to travel, it's a real thing. And mm. there are ways to actually succeed in that space. So do you think there'll be a rise in T&E relationships or T&E campuses? Absolutely. A lot of universities have already started to create T&E um, campuses. Well, they've been doing this for years, but I've seen a, a huge uh, increase in them over the last couple of years. So do you think that's going to be a way to to leverage their institution in host countries where they necessarily aren't getting a lot of students from, but they would need the, the right quality education? Absolutely. And it's interesting to look in the transnational education space at the different approaches that different countries have taken. So, you know, the UK has been very big on TNE for for decades now, and and it's not primarily been about kind of investing in in physical campuses offshore. Although there's probably been some of that activity, other countries have, have really gone hard into that kind of physical campus model of of TNE. But the one that seems to have been most successful in the in the last few years has has really been about franchising the university brand into countries and markets with with partners that can actually um, provide kind of more tailored approaches for those local students. So it's interesting that, you know, mm-hmm. maybe the the most interesting model of, of T&E is where the university is contributing its brand, but not necessarily a lot else. It's quite a commercial sort of mindset, you know, focusing on brand, franchising that abroad and being known for, and recognised for that. Yeah, it's and for a lot of you know a lot of universities they you know they they just don't have their heads in that space at all. But there are some great examples of of really respected institutions that have done really well in that space. And I'm not just talking about commercial outcomes, but also about mm-hmm. student outcomes and quality outcomes as well. So yeah. you know it does give me hope that institutions can actually uh, adapt and succeed in this new world. Yeah, we were actually talking about that in our last podcast, actually, the case of COVID, although it's, you know, it's disruptive, it's an opportunity to grow and it's an opportunity to kind of adapt to new strategies that are timely to the events that are happening today. 
so much positive to come yeah. out of it, especially if you focus on the students, so the quality of the teaching and what they actually want. So, I mean, and that raises a, a point for me because, you know, it's all very well to kind of, and it's hard, look, it's really hard to to, to look into the future and, and forecast anything at all. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm as bad at that as the next person. The thing about the megatrends is that they're, they're based on pretty reliable trends rather than just being kind of futurist type guesses. But um, people ask me, well, what's it going to take to succeed sort of post-COVID and, and post the disruption of these megatrends that, that I've been seeing? And, and I've got three things that I would, would say, you know, if, you, if you're going to be successful in this future, you need to focus on three things. And one of them is most institutions, they're still stuck in this model of marketing in, in geographic boundaries, you know, where we want more Chinese students or Indian students or Indonesian students or whatever that, that kind of pick list looks like. And, and what I say is to succeed in, in this, this future with these future opportunities, institutions need to pivot and actually target learners, not markets. And it takes a bit of getting your head around because you actually first, if you're going to target learners, you have to know what it is that you're actually targeting to them. You have to have a really strong value proposition. And those learners could be anywhere across the world. And digital marketing allows you to actually target learners first and foremost rather than geographic markets. So, you know, if you're going to succeed, you have to actually pivot and target learners, not markets. So, you know, the geographic-based marketing approach, when we were out in Pakistan, we noticed there's a cultural shift between um, different learners. They value international education, but don't necessarily obviously want to travel, but they would go to a university that's a British university or an American university, even online, or, you know, they'd rather go to an institution from a cultural perspective that's international than go to a local university because they perceive it as better quality. So maybe getting into the mindsets of individuals, you know, and countries and cultures and really understanding that element can help maybe drive the learner and the market. And it's tough for a lot of institutions that have got this product-driven mindset where mm. they have to actually change their thinking and say, well, we're not marketing you know, these degrees uh, anymore, these bachelor's degrees or these postgraduate qualifications. What we actually first and foremost need to define is who are we trying to attract into those programs and why, why are we trying to attract them? It's, it's a totally different set of skills. And some institutions are, are, are being phenomenally successful in this space in some countries like New Zealand. This is their, their whole country-based marketing approach is target learners, not markets. But our other institutions are still very traditional. It just makes so much sense, doesn't it? Because by doing that, you're giving the audience what they actually want. Absolutely. Rather than trying to sell something that you've created. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, what does the learner need? And <laughs> yeah, start with the need. Yeah, it's a bit radical, isn't it? It, it just seems so simple, though, doesn't it? But it, it seems is. like it, you'd also really attract the students you want to bring through the door and the ones that are, of, you know, higher quality, so to say, you know, in terms of targeting them directly rather than just targeting geographically. And I think that plays nicely into the second thing that institutions need to kind of get their heads around if they're going to succeed, which is... Um, and, and I've seen uh, countries and, and a lot of uh, universities um, being guilty of this, is they don't actually play to their strengths when it comes to 
you know, um, either marketing or targeting learners is that they see themselves as, you know, comprehensive institutions and indeed they are from a domestic sense. But when it comes down to it, you know, they need to be really clear about what they are absolutely world-class in, uh, which will be actually quite a short list of things, and really focus on targeting learners that are interested in those in those few things. Um, and most institutions fall into that, and I know there's internal politics, which is we're comprehensive, we need to promote everything, there's politics around picking some over others, but the reality is you don't come to New Zealand to get a world-class business education because that's not our our key strength. But there are some other things that New Zealand is absolutely world-class in, but we fall into the trap of saying we're good at everything, which just isn't true. It's the same with UK, UK universities as well. It's like, how are you going to differentiate yourself and what are you exceptional at from 10 years working in-house, yes, there's a, a lot of internal pressure that you need to promote all the the courses and there's a huge range of them. So you can't be good at everything. And, and that's going from working a really small institution to a really large one, yeah. very similar sort of approach. What I've also noticed is that the universities, they do have actual strengths, but they like to just add things on. So they, they'll they'll have their core strengths, but then they'll do this other thing where, oh, it's a nice to have because everybody else has it. So like engineering, it's a nice to have, but not necessarily world-class within it, but they want to offer that. So that's the mindset they go into with even creating programs. It's like, because everybody else is doing it, we should also create a faculty for engineering. We should also have a new building for engineering, not necessarily going in with, this is a required need for the student or and it's something different. Yeah, absolutely, something different. Yeah. And messaging as well is always quite generic, whereas if you really sold what you're unique at in your core messaging, it's, it's, again, it's something that just seems so simple. Yeah, it is. It is. And in this this new world that kind of is emerging where, you know, uh, online and blended lear- learning, remote learning is, is far more of a feature. You know, if you play to your strengths and you're courageous enough to actually say, well, instead of um, promoting 100 programs and wanting to get sort of 30 or 100 students in each, but actually promoting 10 programs, but actually aiming to get 1,000 or 10,000 students in each, you really have to turn the pyramid on its head. And a lot of institutions are just kind of scared of a model that says, what what happens if we we get this right and we do get ten thousand people? They just you know it's like we can't succeed in that space. But that's what you have to do to succeed in at least the price price tier in the future. I also wonder how many universities are actually having these conversations because it's one thing you know you know what you're good at, you know your core strengths, and you know what to add on, but. Are you actually having the conversation and voicing what you're really good at and actually projecting that in every aspect of marketing, branding, delivery, and everything else that comes under that strand? Well, I think, unfortunately, um, and this is just my my very personal opinion, one of the things about the, the international education model at the moment is it's actually reinforcing the status quo. It's slowing the pace of change. Because, you know, your average university is under so much pressure from so many quarters in terms of increased costs, increased expectations, societal change. And that additional income from international students allows it to actually continue to do 
what it's doing at the moment and it slows the pace of change and mm-hmm. in some ways i think it because it's reinforcing the status quo it's actually leaving in the long term medium to long term a lot of those institutions worse off which is this really perverse thing to say about the current model of international education but as you said it's just not agile enough so they're going to kind of carry on investing in what they know Absolutely, and they're, they're insulated by the fact that they've got enough revenue from their current international students to like, continue to largely do what they do unaffected. But when you, if that goes away, and in a world where supply outstrips demand, institutions may not no longer be able to get the, the volume of students that they want, then there's going to be a shock. And that shock, and we're seeing that with COVID, where you know there's already talk in the, in the States and, and other countries of of colleges and universities uh, closing, uh, making really significant financial losses because um, they're no longer getting international students across the border and into their institutions. I've also seen prices. Universities are already dropping their prices. I've, I've noticed a few universities who have done that. So that will obviously damage their brand in the long term as well. It's kind of easy to understand. It's in the time that we're in, everyone's going to be aiming to get as much market share as possible back as quickly as possible and discounting mm. or whatever we want to call yeah. it is is just going to be the normal thing but it will permanently destroy value those 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 prices will those tuition fees will never get back to where they were it just permanently destroys that value yeah. Clive how how did you come up with these trends were they based around data yep um as part of this work my colleagues and I have reviewed literally hundreds. I think the last time we counted, it was it was well over two hundred, maybe two hundred and fifty research papers on 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 various aspects, real data driven trends. And so we've just taken an enormous amount of of information and actually tried to digest it and connect the dots and distill it down to say what are the key things here, what are the key drivers. Um, what are the things that are just kind of short-term and relatively unimportant? And what are the things that are kind of crucial to the future of, of international education? And what do those things actually mean? Um, which is really what we've been focused on is the data is one thing. It's just the what piece. But it's, you know, once you've digested all of that information and data, then you have to ask the question, well, so what does that actually mean? Yep. Um, which is what we've done by by kind of framing up these megatrends. And then you have to move forward and say, okay, so we understand what, we understand the so what, and then what's the now what? What, what, are, what do we say institutions need to do? And the third piece of, and we've been talking about that. Um, so the third piece of that puzzle from our perspective is apart from you know targeting learners, not markets, and, and focusing on, on you know real strengths, playing to strengths, the third thing is, Marketing causes, not disciplines. Okay, and again, this is very much in the space that we were talking about: is the the learners that we were talking about, the Gen Z learners, what they care about is causes. And so, for institutions that are still marketing, you know, science and accounting and engineering, etc., that is not going to connect um, with Gen Z learners. Um, if you can reframe it and say, well, actually, we're focused on on mitigating climate change or social uh, justice issues. That's how you engage those learners. Definitely. So, so, so again, it's just destroying this traditional product-based marketing approach, and actually turning it on its head to promote actually the outcomes that learners will be able to 
to engage. And I guess it's a shift away from, you know, higher education is about getting a job and actually, you know, sustaining yourself in the world to saying, actually, when it comes to megatrends like climate change, maybe sometime in the future when when things actually get far more uh, serious than they are right now, that actually education systems everywhere will end up getting repurposed to actually helping fight climate change. So that's a fairly radical thought. It needs to happen though, doesn't it? At some stage it will. It's just like, you know, we're, we're in this, you know, if you've heard the phrase boiling the frog, mm-hmm. um, we're, we're, in, we're in the boiling the frog phase and at some stage... I, I haven't heard that phase, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, you're a frog in a pot and there's a fire under the pot and you don't notice that it's getting hotter and hotter oh, and poor hotter. Frog. Um, <laughs> Until yeah, the poor frog. That's right, and that's the phase that we're in with with climate change. And until there's enough global consensus around the fact that it it is a thing, and actually we need to do something. And, you know, COVID gives me some hope because COVID demonstrates that in the face of adversity, um, actually countries can mobilise and do things differently. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. I just hope we don't get so complacent that we think, oh, actually we've we've done enough for the moment, and we can just kind of ignore climate change for another 10 or 20 years because we can't. No. I'm going to just touch on the, um, so you use the word sustainable and I, I find that's just such an incredible word right now to be using because it's not just, you know, sustainable learning. It's also what happens when you get a good job and, you know, it's about creating sustainable lives post-pandemic. So, you know, it's about solving the problems of really being involved and sustainable in what's coming so I suppose that brings me to if you were to give advice to any UK university before they do open back up in September. So what sort of advice would you give? Don't aim to go back to how things mm. were. This COVID's created an opportunity, and it certainly wasn't one that anyone was anticipating, to actually drive change. And if if everyone goes back to, to the status quo, um, all we're doing is pushing the problem further down the road. I mean, the problem of being over-reliant on Chinese students, the you know, the other megatrends, they're, they're still coming. Um, none of that's changed. So um, if we just aim to get back to how things were and that was all um, comfortable and we were, you know, happy there, then actually we're, we're making it worse yeah. by, by getting back and- there. And I would say that to con- countries as well as institutions, it's like, you know, if you're aiming to get you, you know, back to you've got thousands of Chinese students coming uh, into your country to study in your institutions, then that's just not sustainable. And we know that all of the data is actually, it's not guesswork. It's absolutely reliable, those demographic trends. So if, you, if we know that hit is coming, then, then we're actually going to make it worse for ourselves by trying to get back to where we were. So first of all, I'd say, you know, um, don't waste a good crisis. You use the, the the COVID situation to actually drive permanent change and think differently. Secondly, I'd say talk to people like the brand education about actually how things can be done. <laughs> how much are you paying? Them? <laughs> it is going to take seriously though. It is going to take new thinking, and and as I kind of mentioned earlier. If you're an international director who's responsible for marketing and recruiting international students, you're on this hamster wheel of having to make my quota for the next semester, the next term, the next year. And you you just not got the time or the resource or the inclination to 
to step out and look ahead and you need help to do that and doing what you've always done is a recipe for failure i can guarantee it absolutely i mean it's almost like becoming this covid has become a catalyst right in a in a sense that let's speed things up let's speed up the rapid change that was coming like everybody talked about the industry um, as as slow to change and i think this has become a great opportunity to be that catalyst and as you said it's proved that it is possible to change extremely quickly absolutely well clive thank you so much for joining us today it's been brilliant and really insightful listening to everything you have to say thank you thanks clive oh you're welcome and you've been really enjoyable thanks very much thank you clive in next week's episode we'll be discussing blended learning innovation and supporting new students with academic Simon Thomas from the University of South Wales. If you like what you're hearing, then we'd really appreciate it if you'd subscribe. Disrupting the Degree is brought to you by The Brand Education and Carnival Content. <laughs>